So welcome to our podcast for Children's Mental Health Week. And I'm delighted to be joined by other colleagues from our faculty executive, Guy Northover, Alka Ahuja, and Louise Theodosio. But I'm first going to start with a piece that has been prepared for us by Nathan Randalls, a young person with lived experience of CAMS, who has written a very powerful piece for us to first reflect on when we're thinking about children's mental health and growing together. It has been a decade since I first self-harmed. I was 12 years old and struggling with finding a voice of my own and attempting to come to terms with the person I wanted to be. It would take four years of apathy, resignation and self-hatred for me to begin to reach out for help. During those years, I struggled to develop the social skills needed to maintain friendships with other young people my age. I experienced bouts of bullying and grew to loathe the world in which I lived. In school, I had a desire to learn. I had my passions, the sciences, music and history. Unfortunately, I could not translate these passions into academic results. At age 15, and with the mounting pressure of my impending GCSE exams now looming, I finally broke. My self-harm had gotten to the point where ignoring it was no longer an option. I left classes with blood running down my fingertips. I wrapped myself in tissue paper to prevent my shirts from being stained. With the support of a patient friend, I finally reached out and told a teacher about how I was feeling. It felt like one of the first times I could be listened to and find a sense of self within it. This action is what changed the course of my life forever. I was then isolated from my fellow pupils, given counselling and eventually taken to A&E for an emergency mental health assessment. Two weeks later, I was in CAMS. I was prescribed medications and therapies. I found myself in an environment where the most important thing was my voice and my ability to articulate myself with it. Gradually, I began to improve. The occasions I self-harmed had slowed and finally stopped. I felt myself gaining a sense of optimism about the world and the people in it. Despite this, I still struggled when stepping back into my daily life. I did not do well on my GCSE exams. However, I no longer felt my scope to achieve was bound to grades on a slip of paper. The summer of my 16th year saw me participate in the National Citizen Service Programme. I felt it was a fresh start. I could put into practice all that CAMS had taught me, and so I did. The greatest thing about it was that it worked. I made strong friendships. I learned how to engage others my age, besides a psychotherapist. If CAMS was where I realised I had a voice, the National Citizen Service is where I learned how to use it. I shadowed the CAMS service for an apprenticeship. During this time, I had the opportunity to sit on interview panels within the service. I began to see the genuine impact my words and thoughts could have on the ongoing development of the service. Eventually, an apprenticeship was available. I applied, interviewed, and a week after my 18th birthday, I had a job. As a social media apprentice, I focused on the digital and networking of the service. The exact gift of voice that CAMS had given me 
became the tool needed for me to do my job as well as possible. Jumping forward four more years, I am now 22. I still struggle with many areas of my life and I still have many places to improve myself. Yet, looking back at the person I once was and how that young boy felt every day, the path I wish to walk down in the future could not be more evident. I have begun studying medicine. With the aspiration of becoming a psychiatrist one day, I hope that far fewer young people find their voice under the same circumstances I found mine in the future. I hope that young people won't feel forced to wait until the breaking point before reaching out in the future. Furthermore, I hope that young people live in a society that intends to nurture them and their tomorrows with cared for institutions available to help serve them whenever needed. I feel endless gratitude towards the individuals and organisations who have helped push me to where I am today. Without them, I wouldn't be where I am today. My final hope is that more young people receive access to the same opportunities I have been lucky enough to have had. Okay, that is such a powerful piece and it gives me great cause for hope and also I found it emotionally really, really challenging to listen to because I think Nathan has expressed how much suffering he was going through and how alone he felt. And I just wanted to start with you, Guy, and ask you to reflect on that and uh, share your thoughts. What, what a powerful statement. And I, I know you've already said it, Elaine, but I think it is, it, it's worth repeating. And, and, and what, what strength from, from Nathan to be able to, to, to put that down and, and to, to let us know his, his, his experiences. And I tell you what, I can't wait for Nathan to be a, a, a psychiatrist because he's undoubtedly going to be an absolutely fantastic psychiatrist. And I think we can see that from everything that he's been able to achieve, everything he's been able to change already, and his desire to make services better for everybody. And from his statement, I mean, uh, Elaine, like you, the, the, the emotional impact, I think, is huge. And I'm, I'm trying to move a little bit beyond the emotional impact. Um, and what I, one of the things that I've really taken out of this is, is, is that phrase that it takes a village to raise a child. I've probably misquoted, but I think you know what I'm, what I'm probably trying to say there. Because when I, when I listened to what Nathan was saying, the impact of school was, was crucial, both positive and negative. Um, having a teacher who was able, who, who Nathan was able to confide in to say, look, actually, there's something here that I need some help with. The the ability to to, to access the right services, but then for it all to be um, uh, crystallised around the National Citizenship Service, and that it's not just about a, a mental health professional giving you some CBT, it's about how that fits into everything that's going on. And then finally, at the end of it, which is just was fantastic as well to see as Nathan's uh, consideration of his friendships that he's built up and developed as well, and how all of that together has 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 allowed Nathan to develop into to, to what we all know to be a fantastic young man with, with such incredible potential in the future. Thank you, absolutely. And I, I really like the point you've raised, which is how schools can be a place causing such stress and difficulty for young people and at the same time can be exactly where they find the support and the nurturing that they need and that just uh, creates all sorts of challenges but also as you say it's not just one person 
it is the village. It is going to be friends, family, school, communities, as well as specialist services that can really make a difference. Yes, no, thank you very much. Louise, what, what, what are your thoughts and feelings after hearing that? I would agree with both of you that it's a very impactful piece to listen to and, and it, it really felt very powerful. Um, what I also was left with was a sense of hope because this is a, a young person who has traveled this very difficult road, but who at the end of it is resilient and hopeful and is going to be sharing his experiences. And we all know how valuable it is to be able to bring empathy and lived experience into your work. I think for me, the other thing that really stands out is how important it is that we listen to children and that we give children the tools to support one another because, you know, it, that lovely phrase, a patient friend, you know, the idea that his friend understood what he was experiencing and was there to offer that peer support. And we, you know, it's so wonderful that we've got the initiatives we have in terms of skilling up children and young people to support one another and to understand that it's okay not to be okay. And to me, this just beautifully illustrated that. Young people at the moment who seem to be much more open to thinking about mental health and about struggling yeah. with mental health can often be the most empathic and supportive. Yeah. Thank you. Alka, coming to you, and be great to hear your thoughts. No, and I, I totally agree with what has been said, because for me, after reading that piece, it almost got me quite emotional and actually quite angry in the fact that, you know, this is a young person who was crying for help but obviously wasn't getting it. But then on the other hand, when I read the last bit, it made me think that, you know, sometimes it's things like this that get the best in you, although he had to go through all that traumatic journey of, you know, trying desperately accessing health. But I agree, you know, we, we sort of underestimate the role schools play in a child and young person's life because they do spend a significant amount of time. And I know sometimes it's, the most unqualified and non-professional people who can be most helpful. Everybody doesn't need that specialist help. And it may be just the receptionist in school or a dinner lady who gives you that time. And the phrase where it's that patient friend, you know, that that's the way he described the friend was somebody just who was willing to listen to him and give him the time that he needed. And I think it's it's just being mindful that those small things matter so much when one is vulnerable. Completely. And it was so good to hear how not only did he receive the help he needed within CAMS, but also that people recognised the value of bringing him in to help the service to develop further. And that then led to him coming to work with us on the Royal College of Psychiatrists Executive Committee. And that gives me great hope because other people reached out to him and he was able to take up that opportunity and that challenge. And uh, we're, we're very much the better for it. Thank you. Can you. Can we move on to thinking a little bit about what life was like for us? Um, and Alka, thinking back, he talked about difficulty starting quite a young age and really coming to a head when he was about 15. Can you tell us a bit about what life was like for you at that age? I was born and brought up in Bombay in India and 15 years was when I was preparing for my GCSEs as well. We tend to do them in year 10 and I went to a convent school and one thing, you know, that struck me was the amount of support and that social network that I had because GCSEs were very stressful. There's a lot of academic pressure to do well and achieve. And achievement is 
almost identified as either you get into medicine or engineering. There wasn't any third career. So everybody sort of went down those two paths. So you've got to get the grades. You've got to go to the best university and excel. And I think the very fact that we had almost an open door policy, and I still remember times when we just found, oh my God, maths was getting too much. And we could walk into the head teacher's office and say, oh, this is really getting too much. And she would say, do you want to have a bit of a chat? Or do you want to have an extended break? And we used to have a little canteen downstairs and we could go there and talk to the lady in the canteen, the librarian. She was you know, our best friend. And now in hindsight, I think it was often those little conversations, just venting, ventilating and often gossiping about teachers and sort of saying, oh, you know, this one's really horrible because she gives too much work was so much helpful because it de-stressed us. And unfortunately, coming up to our GCSEs, I lost a very close friend of mine in a road accident. And I still remember that it was hard because the whole school atmosphere had changed. But the very fact that everybody was grieving at the same time, but yet supporting each other and we managed to go through it, it, it had an impact because I, I, I still remember the time when we went for the funeral. But having people to talk to, uh, knowing that people were there for you, it didn't seem that bad for some reason. I know it's funny because at the other end of the world, I was in a small town in Ireland at a convent school, which in some ways was quite limiting. It was an all girls school. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of variety in terms of people's background and cultures, but strong friendships were really key. And we did spend all we talked a lot. People might be surprised to know that about me. <laughs> I was surrounded by quite strong minded other young women. But we were encouraged to talk and to have opinions and to think about our place in the world and to move on and um, be ambitious for ourselves. But when you're saying that, I think some of the best chats and support I ever got was from my piano teacher, where there wasn't a whole lot of piano playing because we would just talk about stuff. And it was about big ideas or what was going on and maybe a bit of gossip, but it was a great relationship as well. So it just shows how you find that support and strength from lots of different people. So yeah, thank you for that. Um, Guy, how was life for you as a, a young teenager? <laughs> um, I wasn't the best behaved of teenagers, I have to say. Um, but but fortunately, not not so bad that I like I couldn't get myself into medical school. But I, I grew up in Devon on a, a a small farm, which felt like it was in the middle of nowhere. And you know, in the fact that I couldn't get anywhere, even, even though it wasn't in the middle of the nowhere, it made it, it distant enough um, to to, to get to school every morning, I had to be dropped off at the station in the nearest town and then catch the train into school and then walk from the station to the school. So the whole process of getting into school would take me around about an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half. Um, I, I would always walk rather than catch the bus at the other end and then I'd save up the money to buy cigarettes, which <laughs> is probably not the best thing to do, but there, there we go. Um, and, and then in addition to that, it, it was a private school where work was really prioritised over everything else. Um, so, so being in a slightly isolated place in a school which prioritised work, it, it made friendships a little bit more difficult than, than, than perhaps um, I, I, I would have liked it to have been. And then on top of that, I, I, I did an awful lot of sailing. So, so my, most of my leisure time was, was sailing um, and doing that quite competitively. And I think that throughout my childhood, I, I, I probably missed some very close friendships. I, I did, of course, have friendships and quite a lot with the people who would go to, to school on the train 
with me. But it, it just led to the situation in a school where I probably wasn't alone in not recognising or knowing other people who might be going through emotional distress. And that, that was quite, it was quite a, a, a surprise to me actually to find out when I applied for my first consultant job that the CAMS team was on the same site as the school I went to. And I hadn't realised that. So I think that sort of shows a shift in some ways of, of, of the understanding around mental health and the importance of, of, of our emotional well-being to how it was when, when, when I went to school. Yes, and I, I would have been at school before you and um, mental health wasn't talked about as such, but also my understanding was it probably because my mum worked in a psychiatric hospital was mental illness was for people who were really, really unwell. And there wasn't a conversation about people who, like us as teenagers who had our ups and downs emotionally and could feel really upset at times that um, that wasn't really connecting up with that. And I really don't think there were mental health services for children and young people going around at the time. So it does show how whatever the challenge is now, we have come a quite a long way in understanding and recognising that and, and developing services. But it is hard to think about you ever being badly behaved, guys. So, yeah, that's quite interesting to hear. <laughs> Louise, I know that you were in another part of the world growing up. Growing so, up. so tell us a little bit about your experience then. Yeah, um, it's, it's wonderful to be part of this conversation. And I think what's interesting is that I, too, went to a girls' school um, in Zimbabwe. And um, Zimbabwe is unfortunately not, not a country that I suppose... Um, fully embraces LGBTQ rights. So for me, as a young person who um, was already very aware that I was gay, it was quite a complex environment. And I think that sense of isolation that Nathan spoke about, that really resonated with me. Um, I was very lucky to have good close friends at the school, but I didn't feel able, and that was my choice, to discuss my, my sexuality with anyone. And it, I think it, it made me feel lonely and made me feel different. And I think that that sense of, of being different and being other is something that, that I feel I encounter a lot in my work now. And it's something that I, I find very valuable having that experience within myself to get in touch with. And, you know, I, I love working in environments now where, you know, there are LGBTQ friendly and diversity friendly spaces everywhere I look. And to me, you know, one of the most important things that we can do for young people is to make it clear that whatever your difference is, whether you hold that difference inside or whether it's a difference that you think other people are looking at, we are a, we are a service for everyone, all different, all welcome. And to me, that is, is what is so important about wellbeing and CAM services is that we need them to be for everyone and everyone needs to feel welcome right at the door and right through to when they're actually talking to people in the building. Completely. And um, recently, a young man said to me how important the pride flag flying over a hospital and the badge I was wearing was to him because his family aren't very supportive of his sexuality. And he was finding that it was validating to see services absolutely saying you're welcome here and this is a safe space to come in and talk about how you're feeling and what your struggles might be. So it does show that it's it's not just lip service or ticking a box when we have these symbols. And thinking about now, Louise, what would you wish for teenagers growing up in 2022 that how things should be 
in terms of supporting them with their mental health, particularly if they were struggling or feeling different and other and and maybe not sure where to go with that? I think for me, what is incredibly important is that we are advocates for a whole young person. Um, I know that what we're not focusing on here today are themes of hunger and poverty and lack of opportunities. But I feel that, you know, we have a really powerful platform that we stand on as um, psychiatrists. And it's important that that's kept in mind because we all have those basic needs for warmth and protectiveness and safety. And I think, you know, hoping that those opportunities become available to every young child is something that I think we all share. But I think in addition to that, it's about making sure that there are as many different spaces possible. Just to echo um, Alka's point from before, what is really important is that different services and different types of services will work for different people. The pandemic has been a real challenge to us all, but it has opened up so many more platforms, digital platforms, phone platforms, text platforms. It's really important that as many different people and as many different services are available for young people. And yes, in all of those, I think we should make sure that people recognise that what whatever your diversity is, we should have those symbols there because I look for them. I look for pride flags myself and we sh people should know that they'll feel safe and welcome. Thank you. And it does seem helpful that with the rollout of digital technology, everybody was very conscious that not all families could access that and could afford access to data or devices, that that seemed to be in the front of people's minds very quickly which I think is is encouraging, isn't it? Because um, it's the same way for some families, getting to clinics can actually be quite exclusionary, if that's a word, but it can be very difficult financially to, to work that out. Absolutely. Thanks. Alka, what would your hopes be for young teenagers growing up now and the support that they might need for their mental health? I think going back to what everyone has said, it's not just mental health being provided by mental health specialists, but looking at the wider community. And it's how we have a role in supporting some of the work that happens in schools, in leisure centres, you know, with, with places where children and young people will have contact and just generating that awareness and letting young people have the opportunity to have these conversations and not waiting for the time when things get so severely damaged that they need specialist help or they need to come into hospital. The other thing I would flag up is, and this is part of, you know, when I was growing up, even when I started my medical training, I hadn't seen children and young people with ADHD. I hadn't seen older people with dementia. And I think it's something about culture and about people's acceptance and tolerance, because a lot of that was accepted. I'm not saying whether that was right or wrong. You know, kids were treated as being naughty, but, you know, the grandparents would step in and they would provide support and there would be help available so that parents could have some time off and have the kids, you know, on the weekend with grandparents. And I know the family system has evolved and it's more nuclear families, parents working. But I do think there's something about the wider community participating it in you know when I came to this country and I saw kids with ADHD I was thinking oh my god where are they coming from there's something in the water here because I had never seen so many children and young people with ADHD and again things have changed in India as well they have more and more of this being recognized but I do think that society has a huge role to play in promoting that and in some ways you know having awareness about mental health and well-being in the curriculum people understanding it and Going back to digital, you know, it's it's looking at different ways in which young people can be supported. For some, that may be the way they access help. 
because it ensures privacy. It ensures, you know, the fact that they can talk to somebody without parents knowing as long as, you know, those conversations are happening safely. But for others, it may be the face to face work that's needed and more of that. So, yeah, it, it, it's something that we should be thinking more widely and being accessible. I was also thinking back to being a teenager and how a lot of what was on offer has been really good for supporting my mental health on a lifelong basis because we were encouraged to be active and to try lots of different sports and you didn't have to be fantastic and on the top team to be allowed to participate and also to um, have access to music or art and again it was just about enjoying it and these are all things that I think it's so important for children and young people to have access to and I do feel particularly for children with ADHD sometimes the educational setup and where they live can be really difficult in terms of lack of access to spaces for just running around and blowing off steam so it is about thinking as you say about about the whole child and as Louise was saying you know to start off being safe and secure and not worrying about where the food is coming from and families not having to choose between eating or heating which we're, we're unfortunately hearing about that at the moment. Guy what would your hopes be for young people to be able to access now? Um, before I go on to what, what I want to hope, I just want to bring up one of my own stories just quickly because we've been talking about ADHD and just how things have changed. I was assessed for ADHD when I was eight years old and the child and adolescent psychiatrist in his report said I don't have ADHD, I was just a naughty child and what I needed was more of a structured language and I got prescribed Latin lessons. Um, believe it or not, I was terrible at Latin. So, so if we're thinking about hope, and, we, and at that time, that was probably considered a, a good approach to the presentation that I had. So, so one of my hopes for the future is that we continue to develop, we continue to improve, we continue to learn, and we continue to find new ways to help um, teenagers as they become young adults, as they become adults and, and on throughout the whole of their lives. And the other thing that I really hope is hope itself. I think at times we, we, we live in a world where, where hope can seem a little bit distant. Um, I, I think if we look at the, um, the, the, the environmental crisis we, we seem to be going through, on top of that we've got COVID as well. And I, I would just like all young people to be able to hope and know that they can make a change to, what, uh, to, to how we're moving into the future so they can see a future not just for themselves but for, for, for everybody. Thank you. And yes, young people are also so much more connected with the bigger issues. I think sometimes we get a little bit blinkered as we focus down in our work and our families and they are thinking about these big issues, aren't they? They are wondering about the state of the planet and what type of world they will be going out into in terms of the working world and worrying about the effect of the pandemic and whether there might be more in the future. And I do feel that uh, that's a burden they're carrying that I wasn't aware of when I was growing up and I completely agree that I would like to think that they will feel hopeful about the future as well because they have so much going for them and that is part of the joy of our job isn't it we come and contact the young people all the time who are just so impressive so thank you so much I think that's a really nice way to finish isn't it that uh, we have great hope for children and young people and I hope that uh, they will carry on the, the, their teaching of us and pushing us to develop better skills, resources and uh, opportunities for them. 
Thank you very much for being part of our podcast. And I look forward to seeing you soon.